I keep saying that I covered the good years of the Arab Spring. It was before the big derail. Uh, and it was really the hopeful times. I felt really blessed because I visited all these countries before the political context became too complicated. And I've learned realities that no one can really take away from me. I've spent enough time in, in those Syrian uh, towns and in, in homes and in, in cultural centers and you name it. They gave me immunity to believe any big headlines like a complete radicalization or anything of the sort. From these years spent traveling and documenting the radical transformations of the Arab world, the next project of Alia Ibrahim arose. In 2017, the Lebanese journalist co-founded Daraj, The Stairs, an independent pan-Arab news website which tackles topics that are not often seen in the media of the region. Human rights, gender issues, sexuality, fact-checking. My name is Camille Diao and I am also a journalist. For the past few months, I got to talk with reporters, podcasters, news anchors, bloggers and other actors of the media industry around the world. I listened to them at length. They told me about their backgrounds, their inspirations, their battles. I asked them a lot of questions and one thing leading to another between these men and women from all over the world, I started to see the connections. Shared beliefs, ideas, courage, passion. I spoke to 10 different people. They come from Lebanon, from Benin, from Myanmar and the Ivory Coast amongst other places. In this podcast series, I want you to hear their voices. You're listening to Correspondance, the podcast of the newsmakers. First episode, Alia Ibrahim. Well, over the past few days, we've been monitoring social media. And in Correspondance, the podcast of the newsmakers. Alia Ibrahim is 46 years old and has been a journalist for more than 25 years now. Her resume is as long as your arm. Managing editor for the Daily Star, a major daily Lebanese newspaper in English. Senior news correspondent for Al Arabiya News Channel, contributing reporter for the Washington Post, and professor at the Lebanese American University. Her latest adventure is called Daraj, a pan Arab independent digital media platform launched in 2017 with her colleagues Hazem El Amin and Diana Mukaled. A journalist, an entrepreneur, a media activist, an instructor, and mom to two teenage daughters, Alia Ibrahim is a woman with endless energy and dedication. When I talked to her, it was only a few weeks after an explosion devastated Beirut, the Lebanese capital where she lives, on the 4th of August 2020. 
Another hard blow in this year that had already seen the country's economy collapse and the COVID-19 pandemics get in the way of popular protests against the regime. Staying on track in the midst of such devastation is not an easy thing. But when you are Lebanese, just like Alia, you know a thing or two about historic upheavals. I was born in 1974, the same year that the civil war started in Lebanon. And uh, I think I'm, uh, I belong to this generation that's always referred to as the civil war generation. In Lebanon, the civil war was not always taking place uh, in the same area. We kept moving from one city to another. We kept uh, adapting to whatever the war implied. Every detail in our life uh, was basically shaped by the civil war. This, in a lot of ways, meant becoming very politicized at a very early age. We started following up on the news and eventually, I think, uh, this played a very important role of why I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to better understand, maybe, but also uh, I wanted to take part in the public life. My grandmother, to my father's side, who who's a, who's a first-generation refugee, was an amazing storyteller. I think, given the fact also that uh, listening to her stories was one of the main entertainment channels we had. Uh, very early on, I became fascinated by this art of of uh, telling stories, creating this this world of of imagination that to a lot of cases, many of the stories of my grandmother were related to her own childhood, being refugees, moving from one country to another. I think listening to my grandmother influenced me a lot, uh, at least at the level of wanting to tell stories. I grew up always thinking that I wanted to be a journalist. Very early on, I was uh, my favorite uh, cartoon character was a journalist herself, free soul that was always traveling. Her name was Sandy Bell. Sandy Bell, Sandy Bell, and it's me, Sandy Bell. <laughs> now it's it's completely uh, it's not it doesn't exist anymore. I think, but anyway, this idea of just going around the world. Uh, to tell stories and look for stories was always uh, what I wanted to do. I graduated in 1996 and very, very quickly I, uh, I started uh, working at the Daily Star, which is the English language newspaper at, uh, in Lebanon. It was my first job, but it was also the place that shaped me most as a journalist. The civil war had ended, obviously, but Lebanon was still under Syrian occupation. Freedom of expression uh, in, in appearances looked like uh, an acquis, uh, uh, something that was guaranteed, but the reality was much more complex than that. Self-censorship was already very much in place. Part of the establishment at the time wanted to claim to the world that freedom of speech in Lebanon is guaranteed and that was reflected in the publications uh, that were in foreign languages, whether French or English. 
This is why working in an English language newspaper was, uh, was, was very liberating. As journalists, we were allowed a higher ceiling when it came to covering uh, sensitive stories. I spent at the Star almost 10 years. I started as an intern, then a junior reporter. I covered the environment extensively, uh, human rights, uh, free liberties. I covered parliament. By the time I left it, I left as the managing editor. And the fact that I was able to cover all kinds of beats, the flexibility, also having the opportunity to work with, uh, with, the, with editors who really helped a lot to shape the way I write, the way I structure, but also the way I, I develop a critical mind. All these things were done during these 10 years at the Daily Star. With time, I started to realize that uh, the margin of freedom that I was enjoying writing in English came also with the reality that the impact of an English language newspaper in a country like Lebanon is completely different. And as a journalist motivated by seeing an impact to her, to her work, that was a little bit frustrating. I remember a lot of stories, but one that, that was particularly stunning was a story about how the mandate of the president of President Emile Lahoud was going to be renewed. And the story was broken on the Daily Star, uh, I think five days before the rest of the media picked it up. And it, it, it just passed on the Daily Star. Nobody picked on it, like maybe some diplomats followed up on it, but it did not have the impact that it had a few days later when uh, it was a front-page story on one of the local newspapers in Arabic. And, and at the time, I think I was really eager to start talking to an audience that I can relate more to. It was really frustrating that even my own mother doesn't read stories that I write. I know that as important as I felt the newspaper was, I was very eager to be in touch with, uh, with, the, with, with the larger audience. The big, big shift to me was uh, moving to a pan-Arab a news channel, which was Al Arabiya. I thought I was prepared to what it means, but, but I wasn't. It, it was really overwhelming. The power of TV and the power of, of speaking in the language of the majority of the people around you. I was uh, taken by uh, how fast the stories I was saying were... Uh, were spreading, uh, what kind of impact they were having, how much uh, conversations they're stirring. It really hit me how, how strong the impact is. When I was doing coverages around the region, when the Arab Spring started in the suburbs in Syria, uh, I mean, people would recognize me so much, they would tell me uh, phrases I have said in, in, uh, in previous reports. Uh, I could see how shaping public opinions can happen uh, through through TV. 
despite the the rise of of digital over the last 10 years i still think the power of tv is unquestionable When the Arab Spring started, I covered the, all the countries practically of the Arab Spring. It started in Tunisia and uh, nobody really took it very seriously. But then when it shifted to Egypt, we started really like looking closer. And then the next thing we know, it was starting in Syria and in Libya and in Yemen and in Bahrain. And it was overwhelming. For me as, uh, as a journalist, but also as a citizen of, uh, of the Arab world, the year 2011 was just inspiring in so many ways. It was full of hope. It was like what you've been waiting for all your years, all your life has finally happened. And it was happening for the right reasons. I keep saying that I covered the good years of the Arab Spring. It was before the big derail. Uh, and it was really the hopeful times. I felt really blessed because I visited all these countries before the political context became too complicated. And I've learned realities that no one can really take away from me. I've spent enough time in, in those Syrian towns and in, in homes and in, in cultural centers and you name it. They gave me immunity to believe any big headlines like a complete radicalization or anything of the sort. When I covered Syria, I went in the north, obviously, from the northern border through Turkey. And it was before the time of ISIS. It was the beginning of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. I was impressed by how much I felt on the ground that I could be true to my reporting. I was surrounded by all kinds of armed people, actually. And I was able to say things exactly as I was seeing them. But then eventually I realized that there was people who in principle are supposed to be on the same side as me. I mean, with the revolution, did not like what I was reporting. It was not what was happening on the, on the ground. It was really something that happened on social media exclusively. And I realized how big it was when I had left Syria. The next thing I know was that I was considered a traitor to the revolution and uh, there was even a fatwa to, to kill me and I had to run out of Syria at night. I've had the most fascinating conversations with young uh, rebels and young fighters also about if we really want to change, if we really want to move forward in, in our societies, fighters do what they do, activists do what they do, and journalists need to do what they do, which is sometimes reporting on, on stories that, that is a, practically against their own likings. I did not like what I was seeing, but I could not lie. I was more faithful to being a journalist than I was to being pro-revolution. I considered it as my own defense of the revolution. 
societies are not going to improve and we're not going to move forward without good journalism, decent journalism and impact-driven journalism that prioritizes making the powerful accountable and empowering those who are on the weaker side of the link. I think one of the most inspiring uh, trips I've had was the one I've, I've had in Sana'a. One of the things that struck me the most was the interviews that I've had with the young people who came from all over Yemen to the tents in the 16th street, in the, the Saha at the time. And I would ask young uh, young men, why, why did you come here? And they would say, we we are here because we want a better life. And then I would ask them, what do you mean a better life? And then, then I would get no answer. And it's not one time, it's a, it's a, it's, it stroke me the first time I didn't get an answer, so I kept asking it. Uh, and I think it's telling because when you're talking to young people, they know that they need to get out of this reality, but they don't have a real understanding of what a notion like freedom of speech really means, or um, having rights as citizens, or simpler ideas in the minds here that, that the leader or the president or the king is a human being just like the rest of us, which in most of these countries, the, the leader was an untouchable figure. And to put things into the general context, I think one of the main reasons the Arab Spring failed was the lack of the infrastructure. It's not enough to go out on the streets and say, we want change. Change unless there is an infrastructure, a good judiciary, a good, uh, well-protected, strong freedom of speech. You just don't move from a dictatorship to a democracy just like that. You need to build the structure for it. And I think... This is why, I mean, any, any naive ideas we had at the beginning that things could happen easily was, was undermining that the establishments or the dictatorships in all these countries are not just going to let go. Uh, things were adding up. The Arab Spring was uh, turning into a bit of a nightmare. Uh, the wars and the violence was was increasing in the region. The politicizations and even propaganda was on the rise inside mainstream media. It was becoming extremely frustrating to be uh, working inside the mainstream media. One turning point for me was the Panama Papers. We have received a copy of the Panama of, of some of the stories published in the Panama Papers that were relevant to our audience. Some of them were related to Rami Makhlouf, uh, the, the cousin of President Assad, and others. And um, these stories did not could not be published in either the TV station I was working in or other regional uh, newspapers here. And this was completely disappointing because you know many of the international journalists who are working on these stories and then suddenly you feel like you belong to another industry, you belong to another profession and uh, you're so limited. 
all the media in the Arab world and the region are funded by either or political parties, either or governments. If it's not Saudi, then it's Iran. If it's not the Muslim Brotherhood, then it's uh, uh, I don't know. The economies around us were changing, and the idea of independent journalism was on the rise. It was already emerging in many parts of Europe and the Western world. And we started the asking around. We started asking journalists like ourselves, who were mostly mid-career. The idea right from the beginning was to create a media by journalists, for journalists to be able to cover the stories that they think are important. Not one single journalist from, by the way, a spectrum of completely different ideologies, political beliefs, you name it. But everybody agreed. If you're a journalist, you agreed there was a need for an independent media. What Daraj is, it's an impact-driven media company that prioritizes the coverage of underreported groups. The co-founders are myself and um, my colleague Diana Mu'allid and um, my other colleague Hazem Al-Amin. We were looking at what was missing and this is how we started shaping our editorial policy. It was coming from our personal frustrations as journalists, but also from the frustrations of the societies we belong to. And the three of us worked at uh, regional publications or media. So our networks uh, were, were from across the region. It was not just Lebanon. I think at the beginning, we started with like a network of almost 30 writers, journalists. And today we're almost, I know we're, we're above 320. The last time I checked, we were like 320 contributors from all over the world. First, because we really think that there needs to be conversations at the global level in the sense that Arabic speakers all over the world, wherever they are, can enrich the conversation that is happening here. Uh, But also from an economic perspective, uh, right now we are funded by grants mostly, but we aim to become a truly financially independent media. And for that to happen, we have to rely on our own revenue streams. Uh, One of that is audience. You know, Arabic is the fastest growing language online. Arabic speakers represent 6% of the internet audience uh, at the time where the Arabic content does not uh, surpass 2%. So there is a huge room for us to reach the Arabic speaking audience. مجلس شورى الدولة كان هو ضد الدولة نفسها يعني كان عم بيدعم هموم وهواجس أصحاب المكاتب ومش عم بيدعم مبادرة وزارة العمل بتحسين عقد العمل الموحد أنا بساعد زوجتي بالبيت وبهتم مع بالولاد وما بعارض إنها تشتغل برات البيت عبارات كتير منسمعها بحياتنا مرات كتربيح جميلة ومرات عنية حسنة ومحاولة للتقدم We do a lot of work about refugees, especially uh, with the rise of xenophobia and racism in in, in many countries. Lebanon is is 
obviously one of the leading, but but also across the region. Um, the other thing uh, that we are, we cover extensively is uh, gender and uh, women's rights uh, related issues. Over the last few few years, we have really uh, touched on every uh, on whatever is considered taboos. We have uh, had uh, videos about how, um, like I, I, I could mention the headline of of one of the videos saying that virginity is overrated uh, and explaining what 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 the virginity really is or about nudity or about uh, controversial topics like abortions or whatever and when you, you would think that there's going to be backlash but really depending on the tone we really have not had any problems there in in general we became a destination for this kind of stories. This attracted a lot of voices of young writers to come and consider their, 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 their space. I think 2020 has been one of the most difficult years. Uh, in Lebanon, we've been having since October 2019 an ongoing popular protests and popular movement that follows a, a full economic meltdown. The, the, the situation with COVID-19 does not make things easier for us. We've had a major explosion, the, 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 one of the biggest explosions in history. And till now, there's no accountability. It gives a sense of extreme cynicism and helplessness. Lail. ما بقى تجي صوبي ولا تمرق علي يا ليل بطلت مثل لياليك والقمر عنا يا ليل لو بتفل عبلات فيها سلام وروح فيها تنام نحنا الليل بطل إلنا نحنا الليل بطل في معه جيران وقمر صرنا يا ليل عايشين بين الحيرة والقلق as an independent media, it gives us more reasons to exist. It gives us more uh, more motivation. This is why we're here for. This is our raison d'etre. The sense of solidarity that emerged very organically among uh, members of different uh, independent media, but also uh, those working for human rights organizations, freedom of speech organizations. We've, together, we've created a coalition. Uh, we see power in, in numbers. We see power in working together closely. Uh, we stick together. We issue statements together. We demonstrate together. We go to the make sit-ins together. As bad as the time is, I think it's in times like this that real change has um, a chance to happen, if enough people believe that that, that can. I think uh, the explosion that uh, that shook Beirut on August 4 was a wake-up call. Nothing can be more dramatic than what we have witnessed on that afternoon. I mean, I grew up during the civil war. I was never as scared as my children were on that day. The fear I've seen in the, in, in the eyes of my teenage daughters, I have not lived because I was always sheltered. I think it, gave, it put us in front of the reality that the civil war that we thought we put behind us was not really over. We were just living this fake reality that there was no more militias killing each other. But those militias, instead of killing each other, they became one gang and they started oppressing us, the people, all, all of us. But this is the, the, the clock is not going backward. Maybe the revolution haven't succeeded yet, 
but they cannot survive again. They, they as, an, an, as an establishment, as a political elite, cannot go back to govern. One of the reasons why I know that is the young people. All you have to do is to look at anybody in their 20s now and you'll understand why, how liberated they are, how unscared they are of actually claiming what they deserve, claiming the rights they deserve as equal citizens. The way that the young people cleaned Beirut and helped it get over its wounds on, 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 on as of August 4 is inspiring in so many ways, not only Lebanon. This region is full of people who are fighting against the most obscure establishments and dictatorships in recent history. Losing hope is not an option. We owe that to the future. We owe that to our children. We owe that to to anybody who still believes that this region deserves a better future than its past. The year 2020 was a tough one for Lebanon. But according to Alia, more than ever before, the independent media are aware of the part they must play in rebuilding the country. And Alia Ibrahim strongly believes in them. She's currently working with NGOs to file cases against the banks that ruin Lebanon. She's working with legal experts in order to rethink the electoral law. Daraj has joined a new guard of independent media who want to shift the terms of public debate and start a fresh conversation in the Arab world. Correspondance is a podcast series brought to you by CFI, the French media development agency. In the next episode, I will take you to the Ivory Coast to meet investigative journalist Anderson Diedry. See you then. <laughs>